0: Well, I think you might know that our reading is Psalm 103, and you can find it on page 605, starting at the bottom of the page, and it's one of my favorite psalms, so I'm very privileged to read it. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being praise his holy name. Praise the Lord my soul and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, he remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass, they flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, Who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you very much, Helen. Let's pray. We ask, Father, that you would remind us of all that you have done, are doing, and will do for us. And that you would lead us to praise you for this. Amen. I should start by mentioning that you may notice my voice isn't quite right during this sermon. Um, uh, don't worry, I haven't got anything seriously wrong with me. It's just that uh, on Friday we had, uh, for my firm, the first partners' meeting in three years. And in the evening we had a reception. And when you put 400 lawyers in a room, the noise level increases quite considerably. And I competed with it. And um, the result is that I've uh, got rather a bad throat. Uh, it probably merely proves what a lot of you have suspected. I talk too much. Um, anyway, let's start. I have a question. For you, and the, and the question is this, do you sufficiently reflect on what God has done for you and praise him for it? I appreciate that asking a question like that at the beginning of a sermon may imply that I'm expecting a negative answer. But, but that's not my intended implication. I ask that question simply because I think it's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Uh, And if the answer is negative, and sadly I do know that that in my case it it is, if it is negative, then we need to rouse ourselves. We need to think about God and his actions and respond uh, appropriately to that. And that, of course, is why we're looking at this psalm today. Uh, The the psalm is headed of David, and that almost certainly means that it was written by King David. David. And he begins by talking to himself and summoning himself to praise. We've already said these words praise the Lord my soul all my innermost being praise his holy name praise the Lord my soul and forget not his benefits. And having said that David immediately goes on to mention some of those benefits. He says that God's forgives all his sins, that God heals him, that God redeems his life, that God supplies him, satisfies him with good things, that he renews his life, uh, that he works justice. And when we hear a list like that or read things like that in the Bible, there are two traps we can fall into. The first is we just hear it and then pass on. I know that's a danger for me. I've read things like that time and again over the years, and there's a danger that mentally I just say, yeah, yeah, I know that, and move on. And I mustn't, and nor must any of us, because what David's saying here is of absolutely crucial importance. And the second trap is rather different. It's the trap of reading what David says rather naively and assuming that he has completely parted company with reality. You see, we assume he says something like, God forgives all my sins, he stops me getting ill, and if I do get ill, he immediately heals me. He, he uh, makes sure I don't die. He satisfies everything that I want, even to the point of reversing the ageing process. Now, that is misunderstanding what David is saying. We know an awful lot about David's life and it certainly wouldn't justify all of that. So, what is it that David is saying? Well, to understand that, we need to understand his perspective on his life. And it's a perspective that is shared throughout the Bible and a perspective that we ought to have on our own lives. Uh, and the the starting point is here in verse 15 and verse 16 of our psalm. By the way, that's on page 606. If you have the church bible, I I, I suggest you uh, open it at that page, because it is good to follow it. So verses 15 and 16. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it's gone, and its place is remembered no more. I can imagine you thinking at this point, well that doesn't exactly lift my spirits or make me inclined to praise God. And of itself, of course, it doesn't. But it's still the right starting point because it causes us to reflect on the nature of our lives and indeed to reflect on eternity. You see, we need to avoid viewing our uh, immediate problems and, indeed, our immediate joys in a manner that blows them out of proportion to their true significance. And reflecting on the fleeting nature of life and on eternity assists in that. Uh, In his prayer, which is in Psalm 90, Moses says this, You sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. And having said that, he goes on, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now, I'm aware that you may well be thinking, well, that still doesn't do anything to help me. And and I would agree with that. I would sympathise with that if it were the end of the matter. But it isn't. We need to factor in God. Right at the start of that same prayer, Moses says this, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And in a very similar and well-known passage in Isaiah chapter 40, uh, Isaiah says this, the grass withers, I'm sorry, he's first of all explained that all people are like grass and our faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. And he says this, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You see, God is eternal, and so are his decrees and his promises. So on the one hand, we have us, uh, fragile, short-lived human beings. And on the other hand, we have the eternal God. And therefore, uh, the most important issue facing anyone is how we stand before God how do we stand before God what how is God going to treat us before those questions all other questions pale into insignificance and it's because the answers to those questions are so marvelous that David is able to praise God you see David realized that although we are mere insignificant specks before God, grasshoppers, to quote Isaiah again, yet God knows us and understands us because he made us. I've just quoted Moses, you brought forth the whole world, he said. And if we go back to our psalm today, take a look at verse 14. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. God knows us and understands us. And even more importantly, Moses understood that God has infinite love and compassion for those who fear him. He says that three times. Verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. Then verse 13. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And again in verse 17. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. And his righteousness with their children's children. With those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. Incidentally that last bit referring to those who remember to obey his precepts does not refer to those who do nothing wrong. Um, Forgiveness would be a fat lot of good if one of the preconditions of receiving it were that we'd never done any wrong in the first place. That's not what David is saying. David is expanding upon what it means to fear the Lord and to keep his covenant. You see, that involves acknowledging God's awesome majesty, his power, his holiness, and submitting to him. David, of course, uh, didn't know about Jesus, but, but we do. And we're called upon to acknowledge him as our Lord, God incarnate. We're called upon to trust in him and to submit to him. That, of course, is why in our baptism service, we have the question, do you submit to Christ as Lord? Although we do also need to remember that submitting to Christ is not merely a matter of uttering a verbal formula, but is a matter of action. But what we're told here is if we do fear God, if we do submit to Christ, then we can be assured that God's love is with us. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And that love manifests itself in many ways, starting with the forgiveness of all our wrongdoing. We talk about that so often that there's a real danger that its impact is blunted. Blunted. But it is truly wonderful. We are forgiven all our wrongdoing by the eternal God. And that includes ignoring God and not obeying his will for our lives. David, the author of the psalm, uh, was an adulterer. He was a murderer. And he committed all sorts of other wrongdoing. And he was acutely aware of it. But he was also acutely aware of God's forgiveness. He says, God forgives all our sins. And then again in verse 9, he will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Verse 12, which we've already used, as far as the east is from the west... So far has he removed our transgressions from us. God is no longer our accuser. He's no longer the one who charges us with wrongdoing and is angry with us. And and as a result, we can have a loving relationship with the eternal God. As the Apostle Paul puts it, we have peace with God. For all his wrongdoing, King David had peace with God. Paul himself had peace with God. And if we put our trust in Jesus, we too have peace with God. And that has many important outworkings, uh, of which David mentions a few. First of all, look at the second half of verse 3. God heals all your diseases. What does that mean? Uh, blatantly, Christians still suffer illness and our bodies are subject to decay. Uh, Paul said, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await the redemption of our bodies. But we should remember three things. First of all, whatever's happen- happening to us physically, the Holy Spirit is working on us inwardly transforming us and removing the corruption of our nature Uh, Paul wrote this to the Corinthians this is 2 Corinthians 4 though outwardly we are wasting away yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day let's not forget it and then of course secondly God does on occasions heal us both physically and mentally Of course, Christians disagree about the extent to which we should expect that, but there's no doubt that God can and on occasions does heal physically and mentally. But but then thirdly, we need to recognise that that transformation and that healing is at the moment partial. It's not complete, but God has promised that a day will come when it will be complete. In the great visions of the new heaven and the new earth in Isaiah 65 and Revelation 21, we're told that there will be no mourning, no crying, and no pain. God will have healed all our diseases. You see, we need that eternal perspective again. And David has that and immediately applies it in the very next thing that he says. Verse four, he redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. So some think that David's talking there about a specific deliverance from danger, from death. But but I, I think the context and indeed the use of the term the pit suggests that what he has in mind is not so much delivery from physical death, but delivery from the consequences of physical death. He's saying much the same thing as he said in Psalm 16. This is Psalm 16, verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, Sheol, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. You may recall that on the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter quoted that and pointed out that it's been fulfilled in the case of Christ, who is risen from the dead. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, says that Christ is merely the first fruits. He is, as it were, the pioneer and all who believe in him will likewise rise from the dead. This is the famous passage from 1 Corinthians 15. In Christ, all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. If we trust in Christ, we will be raised again. Small wonder, therefore, that David in in our psalm says that God crowns us with love and compassion so God heals us he redeems our lives and then thirdly he satisfies us with good things this, that's verse five who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles uh, unfortunately the meaning of the start of that verse is uncertain The Hebrew actually says, who satisfies your ornament. Um, And there is a bewildering array of suggestions as to what that means. But two things are clear. Uh, First of all, David is not saying, God will give us everything we might desire. The word desire there is an attempt at a translation, but that's not what David is saying but secondly what he is saying is that God will satisfy us by giving things that are genuinely good to us and what are those things well of course that varies from person to person God gives us all different good things already in this service we've tried to think about that and we, we, we need to think about it more. We all need to think regularly about what good things has God given me and to praise him for that. And by the way, when we do that, we need to think about both the objective and the consequence of God doing that. It's here in verse 5. Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Now, I can imagine some of you thinking, well, my youth jolly well hasn't been renewed, and I sympathise with you. Um, uh, if you were to ask Joanna afterwards, though I notice she's now gone, which is worrying, but anyway, um, uh, uh, if you were to ask her afterwards, you would discover that I moan like crazy about the consequences of ageing. But you see, David isn't talking about the difference between a young person and an old person. He's not talking about that. He's not saying that we can go through our lives as if we were still aged 21. No, what he's talking about is us being given strength to persevere, being given inner strength. You may already have thought of the well-known passage at the end of Isaiah 40, Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. This isn't about whether you're young or whether you're old. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And the consequences of that are described in another psalm near to the psalm we are reading. Psalm 92 The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. And listen to this next bit particularly. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green, proclaiming, the Lord is upright. He is my rock. There is no wickedness in him. The Lord establishes us. He strengthens us, and whatever our age, he renews us. And we need to ask that he do that to us, each one of us. Okay, the Lord heals us, he redeems us, he satisfies and renews us. And then, verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. When the Bible talks about God working righteousness, it's generally referring to God bringing judgment on sin and salvation for his people, which are in fact two sides of the same coin. And that's clearly what David has in mind here, uh, because he immediately alludes to the Exodus, verses 7 and 8 he made his, known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. That last bit is an abbreviation of Exodus 34 6, which was God's self-revelation self-revel- to Moses in the desert. You see, God saved the Israelites. He came in judgment and salvation and brought them out of slavery in Egypt and that was a model for what God does for his people. Of course there are literally millions of Christians around the world who are suffering oppression at this moment and we shouldn't forget that. But, but we need to remember three things, rather like what uh, I said a moment ago in relation to God's healing. And, and the first of those things is this, that whatever our external circumstances, the Holy Spirit is working in us. That the Holy Spirit has freed us from the greatest oppression of all, the oppression of sin and death Once again, I'd love to be able to speak at length on that. But but I suggest you look it up in Romans chapter 6 and and 7. Just as God saved his people from slavery in Egypt, so he rescues us from slavery to sin. And then secondly, of course, God does on occasions intervene swiftly to bring judgment on those who oppress uh, his people. And perhaps more importantly, in any event, he is with all of those who suffer from oppression or indeed all of his people who uh, suffer trouble. Uh, there are many people around the world, many in this church, who can testify to examples of that. But once again, thirdly, we need to remember that the... the Uh, working in us only goes so far. Uh, We are still beset by sin, and as the lives of people like Jeremiah and indeed David exemplify, there is still much trouble we experience. In this world you will have trouble, said Jesus. But once again we need to look forward. God has promised that there will be a time when those troubles cease In Isaiah 65, it's clear that there is no oppression in the new heaven and the new earth. So there are a number, by no means all, of the great and wonderful blessings that God brings. And there's just one other thing we need to remember when we're thinking about that. A a number of those blessings are available to us now. But as I've indicated, some are not. So how can we be sure that they're coming? Three things, very quickly. First of all, remember the unchanging character of God. I've already quoted verse 17. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. God is everlasting. So are his decrees. So are his promises. And then second, the sovereign power of God. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. As Paul put it again in Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? And God has shown that and given us an assurance of it by raising Jesus from the dead pull back God loves us and thus he forgives us he heals us he redeems us satisfies us renews us works righteousness for us partially now but he has promised that he will bring all things to completion in due course we should go back to the question with which I started Do I, do you, sufficiently reflect on what God has done and praise him for it? Because I hope you'll agree that's a pretty long list of things for which he deserves praise. Amen.